Welcome to episode 60 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. I am your host, Rose Griffin, and we have an amazing show in store for you today. I have on with us Dr. Jennifer Moore. And if you are working with autistic learners who you think may have apraxia, you are going to want to listen to this episode in its entirety. We talk about apraxia assessment. We talk about how students with autism may have some sensory differences and what this may mean for intervention. We talk about how to pick targets for autistic learners. And one of the most important things I think we discuss is talking about working on interdisciplinary teams. So oftentimes when we're working with autistic students, We have a large team. We have speech therapists, maybe BCBAs. We have parapros, parents that are involved, occupational therapists. And we know that communication is very, very important. So we talk about the SLP's role and how the SLP, as Dr. Moore says, is driving the bus for motor speech. And I really love that. So we talk about that collaborative piece, which is something that comes up quite a bit. So Dr. Moore is a speech language pathologist. She's the co-owner of Brave Wings Therapy. I had the chance to meet her at an ASHA conference, and we really just connect. She's a prompt certified instructor and a subject matter expert in motor speech development and disorders in autism. She teaches workshops. She runs a Facebook group dedicated to this. She's an adjunct professor at Keene University and so much more. I'm excited to dig on in to this episode. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks so much for joining us on episode 60 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. We have an amazing episode today. We have with us Dr. Jennifer Moore. Thanks so much for joining us, Jennifer. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's nice to have you on. And we had a chance to meet in Boston when Asha was there. I can't remember how we connected, but we were able to meet in real life, which was really, really nice. And I think that's one of my favorite things about the conferences, although it does exhaust me to like be making that much small talk like for for four days straight with new people. But now we're like buddies, right? We're always connecting online and chit-chatting about stuff. So it's nice to have you on the podcast today. Yes. Thank you for having me. That was a fun Asha. I remember that. It was like yeah. 2018, Boston, pre-pandemic. <laughs> yes. I think that will be the next time I can actually go in person. I, I'm so excited. I got asked to be on the Autism Planning Committee again for next year. That will be New Orleans. And I think the next year after that is Boston because they have like oh. the next 10 years planned. And I'm excited to be able to attend in real life. Although I did a virtual presentation this year and... I mean, close to a thousand people watched my virtual presentation, which was about working with older students, which is something near and dear to my heart. And it was really nice to connect with people. A lot of people messaged me, sent me Instagram direct messages. And so it was nice to be able to connect with people on that level. But there is that in real life component that (laughs) that is is very nice. So people that are not familiar with you and your work, can you tell us a little bit about you? Sure. I am a speech language pathologist. I have a private practice in Wayne, New Jersey, 
We have a multidisciplinary center where we have kids receiving speech. We have occupational therapy, feeding therapy, and developmental and behavioral interventions that we have as one uh, center. Everybody works as a team. So everybody, all the kids that come through the door get a nice coordinated treatment plan. I co-own that with my business partner, Naomi Sutton. In addition to having the private practice, I create workshops, you know, in reference to my area of specialty, which is autism and motor speech disorders. So that's really been the bulk of my research and my um, coursework that I have developed and materials for other therapists that are also treating this population. Um, I also adjunct at Kane University, where I teach pediatric motor speech development course to first and second year grad students. Wow, that's awesome. So when you were so when you got your masters, how long did you work in the field before you felt like you wanted to go back and get your your PhD? So I didn't have like a straight line to the okay. to the doctoral degree. Um I you know, but that's that would be boring. So yeah. I had to take a lot of twists and turns. I graduated with my masters and at that point I thought, "Hey, I love adults with TBI and that's what I'm going to do with my life." And Obviously, life takes you in a different pathway, and I'm so grateful for where I am, and I found my niche working with autistic learners. So the way I got there was I graduated. I worked in a specialized school that was out of district. So when a public school finds that their current program cannot accommodate the needs of the learner, they seek an out-of-district placement. So I worked in this school that we took kids from other districts. So I worked there, learned a lot stayed there for four years. Then I, I went into a pediatric hospital in their outpatient center. And that's where I was part of the Apraxia task force. Mm-hmm. And also on the, we created a task force to screen toddlers that were showing signs of autism to get them intensive services and on mm-hmm. all the help they need on kind of like in an early intervention mm-hmm. model. So we stayed there, loved it, loved it, loved it. And during that time I began getting really into motor speech disorders and the coexistence of motor speech disorders in the autistic population. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I took prompt, I took DTTC, I took a whole bunch of methods and Mm -hmm. pulled them together in my clinical use to kind of help guide these learners into more functional verbal communication or whatever their goals would be. And so I became, I continued and became a prompt instructor and pre-pandemic we traveled all over teaching these workshops. And so I thought, wow, I'm using, you know, motor speech intervention with autism, the autism population, and it was helping them gain the verbal communication skills that they needed mm-hmm. to communicate functionally and across listeners and context. So I said, wow, let me kind of put this into more research. And so I applied to do a doctor. It was an EDD at the time, a doctorate in education. So I applied and I did my dissertation and all my uh, mini projects in that area. And I used my clients for my dissertation. There were three of them that I saw (laughs) over a course of 18 months and they made such nice gains Mm -hmm. um, with improving like jaw control, lip control, and every, just by using this like eclectic approach. And so that's kind of like how I got there. And that was a span of like 10 years. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That's so interesting. I always love having people on. I had Melanie Potick on who specializes in feeding. And it was just interesting to hear about how she started because she didn't start 
specializing in feeding. It was something different. And then she had a child who was a picky eater and then she took a job in a hospital. And um, so I always think it's really fascinating to hear how people kind of get to where to where they're at. And so today I know we're going to talk about apraxia, which is something that is something that people really want to learn more about. So I had Dr. Edith Strand on episode 44. So if you haven't listened to that, make sure you give that a listen. We did a part one and a part two. And it was so exciting to have her on the podcast. I remember the day that I taped her episode. I also had Dr. Carrie Magro on, who was is an autistic individual who was non-speaking at four, and now he's done TEDx talks. And it was an exciting day <laughs> here at right. ABA Speech that particular day. But for those people who might be new to apraxia, or they might be thinking, yeah, I've heard that term before, but can I have a refresher, Rose, of the definition? Can you just give us a working definition of apraxia? because that is what we're going to chat about today. Absolutely. So apraxia, childhood apraxia speech is basically when the brain has difficulty planning and directing the muscles in a coordinated sequence to produce speech, right? The brain knows what it wants to say. The signal comes down and there's either a um, miscoordination or a miss have with a message where it doesn't go in the order that it needs to go. So kids with apraxia, they display difficulty moving from one transition to another, like one syllable to another. You might see some oral groping where they're moving their mouth, trying to find the positioning for that target sound. You might see some vowel distortions and errors in prosody. So you might have like, I want to go instead of I want to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's definitely something that comes up a lot. People will definitely ask me a lot of questions about it. And we've done quite a few podcast episodes that are always really well-received because I think people just really want information you know, about it. And so, you know, with today, like when we talked with Edith Strand, you know, she mentioned children with autism, but the main focus was really just you know, apraxia assessment, apraxia intervention. But we know when we have autistic learners that there's just whole component that might be different as far as treatment and assessment. So can you talk to us about what is best practice for treatment of apraxia and why might that be difficult for autistic learners? Absolutely. So just kind of looking at our field of speech pathology as a whole, we're seeing an increase in the prevalence of autism diagnosis ratio is going up. We're currently at one in 44. And then from there in that subpopulation of autism, there is sometimes a coexistence of apraxia or motor speech disorder. And research has shown that that's estimated to be around two thirds. There's a wide variety of research because again, this is new, something that we're trying to expand on and research more. So there's not an actual like percentage, there's more like a range. So with that increase in autism, speech language pathologists are tasked with having these kids on the caseload, trying to figure it out. We are looking at evidence-based practice and trying to edit and modify and make it fit the, the needs of our learners, right? Our autistic learners. So the struggle that an, that many SLPs face is that as a whole is that we know that there are really great really great approaches for apraxia of speech you have breast you have DTTC there's up and coming ones but those are kind of like the main gold standard and so with those two approaches there are prerequisite skills that kind of are needed in order for that approach to be max 
to produce maximal outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. So for DTTC, we know that we need to focus on the attention, focus attention on the speaker's face. You need multiple repetitions. You need direct imitation. And also for rest, you need to have some consonant and vowels that are consistent. It's a longer session. They recommend 50 to 60 minutes. They have to tolerate getting things wrong. I'm looking at their checklist, <laughs> um, which is available on their website. Um, and it's for, you know, ages four to 13 is like where they see that their um, maximal outcomes are. So if we think about all the prerequisites, autistic learners, we know eye contact is sometimes not appropriate and, and you know, not acceptable to push the focus on the clinician's face that goes along with it, right? So there's certain things that we know this is what this approach uses as like their maximal criteria for maximal outcomes, but we know that doesn't fit the box that we're trying to to put it in for our, um, our autistic learners. So there's some things that we need to modify. And so as a clinician, and I work with a lot of autistic learners over the years, what I have done is pull pieces from these approaches and kind of create this like eclectic dynamic treatment plan. And I think that's what SLPs, I think that's where we're going to need to go. We're going to have to step out of our box of this is what we need to do for apraxia and think, well, wider. Well, our autistic learners don't learn like that or that's invasive, right? So yeah, that was um, when I had Dr. Edith Strand on. It was just, it was fascinating to talk to her because that the prompting and the the learner needing to really attend to the prompts. And, you know, at times like say it together, there were just certain things that because I've been in this autism world for so long and, and most of my students wouldn't attend that way. I was like, wow, okay, this is really different. It was very interesting to hear her talk about that because sometimes I'm working with autistic students and there are so many other things that we might be focusing on just as a multidisciplinary approach. Maybe the student has a lot of behavioral barriers, that the speech part is something that maybe we're going to obviously work on, but maybe there are other things that are a little bit more important. So, and I think that's what's hard too. I had Laura Smith on, I don't know if you know her, but she is a speech therapist. She has an Instagram and she has a daughter with apraxia, but she just talked about how it was really hard for her to find a speech therapist that number one specializes in apraxia. And number two, you know, when her daughter was school age, I think that she mentioned, you know, it's really hard. She knew in a school Because typically students with apraxia need a higher frequency of service, right? Is that something? So if you were talking to us about, so if if a school-based therapist is listening, what would you recommend for assessment? Like how would we get us started with assessment? I think all speech therapists have a little thing inside their brain that goes, this speech sounds like this student may have apraxia and maybe nobody's brought that up yet. But we know that the treatment is different than your run-of-the-mill speech sound disorder. So what would you recommend as far as assessment and getting started? Absolutely. So again, when we're assessing an autistic learner, we have to look at the big picture. And so my evaluations are more dynamic in a sense that like, I'm looking at sensory, I'm looking at behavior, I'm looking at how do they currently communicate AAC use, right? Mm -hmm. We want to language, receptive language, cognitive ability, looking at the big picture and assessing each of those areas. In terms of sensory, if, you know, if there's sensory differences, that's going to guide your treatment plan. If you know they are sensitive to loud, you know, loud noises, you're not going to amp up your energy during the session and be like, whoa, yeah, because that's going to be aversive to them. So reading that also a lot of the 
you know, prompts that we're going to use in apraxia treatment, you're using visual auditory, sometimes tactile kinesthetic movement. So you want to kind of read, read them and say, okay, well, are they accepting of a tactile prompt? Do we have to build up to that? Of course, you want to have their consent if you are going to move their mouth. So I do, I spend a lot of time in that area of like assessing their sensory, the environment. Is there things that are going to be, you know, going to disrupt their learning environment, such as like the lights on, maybe I need the blue light, or maybe we need background music, or we, a lot of kids at our center, we've structured it where they get occupational therapy first, and then they come to speech. Mm -hmm. So we say you get your wiggles out, right? So they're on the swing, they're jumping on the trampoline, they do their obstacle course, and then they're more regulated and centered when they come into speech the speech session. So if you have a learner that has those needs, that's something that definitely you need to include in your treatment plan for sensory, for environment. I also, in terms of motor, there are tests that you can do. Uh, The DEMS is the one that um, we use for kids with apraxia. But again, you need to have that imitation skills for them to produce the movement. And a lot of our friends are not at that level yet. So Sometimes assessing motor, you want to look at what they are imitating, what they're self-generating, and then across syllable shapes. You can also, if you're taking the prompt approach, there's a whole assessment on looking at phonation from a motor speech standpoint, jaw control, lip control, sequencing, tongue difference. There's a whole other mm-hmm. <laughs> approach. Um, so I will, I will utilize that and take a look at like, well, are they starting to vocalize and is it on command? If I'm like, okay, or on demand if we're like, oh, you want the ball, say ball. Are they going to say ball, mm-hmm. you know, in that moment to make a request or is it going to be in self-generated speech? So you want to look at those different conditions. Is the DEM something that is, because I do right now clinically primarily work with students who are in middle school and high school. So I really am not treating anybody who potentially presents this way currently. Is the DEM something that is available? Like, do you know what distributor sells that? Does Do, do speech therapy, like does Pearson sell that? I'm just curious. because Pearson, yeah, it's a, okay. it's a book. And okay. then um, there's a protocol at the end of the book. Okay. We actually like recreated the protocol on like a Word document. So we just kind of like... <laughs> yeah. Okay. Because I know that... Doc- yeah. I mean, Dr. Strand talked about a couple assessments. Everybody that's come on has talked about some different assessments. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering, you know, if people are like, okay, I want to get started with this. I have kids that seem like they're presenting that way. So that makes a lot of sense, you know, because I think sometimes people too get confused if a student is not really verbal yet, you know, a lot of people will start talking about apraxia, but I feel like we can't really make that decision until the student is able to, to do some of these things like imitating. So you can really hear their speech and get an idea. Right. The important part of apraxia assessment is you want to look and see the movement, see if they're, you know, cause groping, if they're moving around their mouth, or if they're having those imprecise productions, you want to be able to see it. A lot of, you know, if you're looking at the quality of the motor movements, like with jaw, maybe they're opening too wide or not wide mm-hmm. enough. So that's going to cause a disruption in that motor planning system because your movements are off. So your target's going to be off and then it's going to impact your intelligibility. Yeah, I think it definitely takes, it's like a level up. It's a different type of analysis, yeah. right? It's not just like, okay, right. this kid can't say K and G, let's start working on it. It definitely, and I think it's fascinating that you teach a course on it because I know, you know, I've been practicing almost 20 years now. I never had a standalone course. I don't remember a standalone course, but yeah. you know what? I didn't take a course on autism either. It's just something that I was interested in. So I think that a lot of people that 
I could see how some speech therapists will just miss the difference between this and somebody who is maybe just not that intelligible. And it's just so unfortunate because the treatment is so is so different. So can you talk to us a little bit about treatment and how that might be, and maybe how you're modifying for your autistic students so that they're successful? Absolutely. So after you do your assessment and you look at your treatment plan and you see what your learner needs in each of these areas, a lot of times autistic learners come in and they are non-speaking. So, but they, you know, the big thing is we need to create that communicative intent. We're not going to just have kids say words just for the fun of it, right? That's not what we do. That's not our job. Mm -hmm. So we want to pick, we want to see, well, are they motivated? Do they like, what do they want? Right. Even if it's like asking to turn on the iPad, right. Mm -hmm. We can teach them to, if they, if they're trying to say on, then that would be an appropriate target. You don't want to pick words that are not meaningful to them. So we want that functional communication approach in there, that functional communication piece. So a lot of times, like I was saying with um, autistic learners, if they're non-speaking, we have to start at the core of speech sound production, which is in that respiratory control or phonatory. So prompt has a whole motor speech hierarchy that you can, you know, that you can look at. And it has seven subsystems of speech production. And so if we look at the very bottom, that's where phonatory control, that's your power source for speech. So a lot of these kids will engage in vocal stereotypy, which is kind of what I believe is like more of a sensory response to self-regulate, right? I'm excited. I'm going to voice or I'm upset or I'm trying to self-regulate, right? So we need a different kind of vocalization for speech. That's a different part, different coordinated um, system, right? So we, a lot of times we're starting at just getting like, mm, or ah, or just getting the voice started. Mm-hmm. If you have a non-speaking individual, you're not going to say, okay, let's say bah, because if we think about the motor requirements for bah, they got to turn the voice on. There's a timing component. You got to put lips together, turn on the voice, open the mouth, close the jaw. Like if you break down those sequences, there's a lot of steps to saying bah or ball, right? So part of taking a motor speech approach is you're doing that kind of, so to speak, like task analysis and seeing like, okay, well, how do we how do we teach them, right? We have to start with phonation or lips together and kind of work up the system. And then you have, you know, that connection piece, right? You have to connect with your clients so you can read them, Mm -hmm. right? I always tell my um, new SLPs, I'm like, read your client, make that connection. Mm -hmm. So if a child comes in and you know their jam is sensory balls, you know, and wind up things. I mean, I have a whole drawer of like wind up, spinnies, sensory kush balls, things that vibrate, light up, spin, whatever, whatever their jam is, you have to find it. And that's, what's going to, you know, motivate them to learn these motor speech movements and to develop verbal speech. They want to, they want to be able to, you know, everybody wants to be able to, to communicate mm-hmm. and connect on whatever level. Right. So the big thing is finding what they like getting that mm-hmm. motivation and attention. Cause we know kids that are motivated and attend are going to learn quicker and they're going to give you more. Mm-hmm. And then you can build up to those repetitions that we need for maximal outcome, right? We want three to five reps on a target to really emphasize those neural motor pathways. So you're going to build your client up. But the big thing is, you know, making that connection and building up. I love making that. Making sure your client trusts you, right? And, and yeah. reading them. If you, know you, you push them too far, then you're going to get behaviors, right? So why not go? <laughs> right. Absolutely. And having so- them advocate too. Like a lot of my clients 
like I can, I have that connect. I spend a lot of time connecting with them. So I know where their threshold is mm-hmm. and I don't have any like, problem. Like they come to therapy, they're happy. It's fun. We're working mm-hmm. on speech. I'm getting my goals in with the repetition because I'm reading them and acknowledging their boundaries and what I don't want to push them too far. I can kind of sense it. And they tell me like they'll mm-hmm. advocate whether with right. their AC device, I need a break or like, oh, I want to do this first. Mm-hmm. No. So having that connection is really important. Absolutely. So then how do you, so let's say that the student is able to imitate some of those early sounds that you started talking about. So then how would you suggest that a speech therapist or parent that's listening starts then picking functional targets? Like where do we get started with what is going to be a functional target for this student? Absolutely. Yeah. I think you're, you have multiple pieces that need to come together, right? We have what are some functional words, like power words, right? That we mm-hmm. use, you know, a lot of this, what I'm saying is from the apraxia, you know, um, right. research and everybody who specializes in that. And we're just modifying it. Mm-hmm. So I think power, powerful words are going to get you places, right? So I had a one client who had a dog. Her name was Mia. And <laughs> so Mia was a really nice starting word because he had the mm and he mm-hmm. had like the ah. And so we kind of shaped it to be Mia. And then if you think about the reinforcement and the power of re- of Mia, mm-hmm. when he went home and he said Mia, he got the dog came over to him. <laughs> he got to give you know his dog a tree and he got to call his dog from the other room. And it was like that social reward and like you, the grin on his face, like the smile on his face and he just lit up, right? So like empowering them. I'm not going to mm-hmm. spend time pulling out like our tick cards, <laughs> right? you know, and like, oh, this is what we're going to say. No, like what does your client need, right? Power mm-hmm. words. And then you go shaping them. And then, you know, looking at like their system, like can they, can they vocalize? Can they put their lips together? Can they move their jaw for the vowels? Mm-hmm. What do they have and how can we shape it? And functional, functional words. Right. So picking functional words for yeah. them, trying to get multiple imitations or repetitions of those words yeah. in sessions. And then do you have, so once you have those power words and let's say a kid, I don't like to use the word master, but let's say then that criterion, they were able to say those words on their own. So do you transfer those kind of like either in your brain or into a section of like, these are in maintenance and do we continue to work on those power words that the student can do readily to kind of get things going kind of for behavioral momentum? Or what are your thoughts? Like if it's mastered, it's mastered and we're done with that word. Or what are your thoughts on once a student, like when your student could say Mia, does that go into this other type of pile that maybe we use in the session to kind as a warm up? Or what do you do with those words once they're mastered? Great question. So the principles of motor learning is a concept by Edwin Moss and that guides your apraxia treatment, right? Mm -hmm. So, and you can find this, he has published papers on it. So he talks about the acquisition condition as well as the retention, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you are practicing a word in session, you're doing Mm -hmm. your repetition, there's going to be a low amount of targets. You're going to get a lot of repetition and certain targets fit into this acquisition box where you are shaping, you're providing your prompts, tactile, auditory, visual, your rate is slowed, like up Mm -hmm. or up. You're focusing on those movements, right? And then he talks about a retention condition where, okay, we're meeting mastery. They can say up within the session. Then we're going to move to like more unstructured practice. Like maybe it's distributed where it's like, the timing between trials is more and uh, there's it's randomized with other targets. 
you're pulling back on your feedback, you're pulling back on your prompting, you can do it at a faster rate. And then from that retention, that's where it's really like generalized to outside of the session. What I find is because Mm -hmm. then you have, like you said, these set of words that can be integrated into like more unstructured like, because that's when, when learning occurs, right? Learning occurs, learning is the long-term effect of practice. So learning mm-hmm. occurs outside the session, practice occurs inside. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, you know, and building on that, a lot of parents and other professionals, other disciplines are so eager to help that when they hear, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we have a success in the, in the session, they mm-hmm. want to then target it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we want to make sure as SLPs, you know, that we are driving that bus. We are in charge of that motor speech goal. So I always say we do the hard stuff, hard practice in the session, and then they can help support that motor concept outside of the session, but we don't want to overdo it on like the practice because then what the child will, or individual will start to like hate motor practice, right? Mm -hmm. Every time we go to the door and we're going to open it, you have to say open three times, like it's Mm going to get taken out of control. So what I do is I, I assign them like secondary roles. So let's say we're working on saying up. Okay. So let's see, can we build that concept of receptive language? Like, do they understand up? Mm -hmm. Right. So they can model up. They can, a video modeling is great. You can take a video of somebody saying up and having Mm -hmm. them just try to imitate it. You know, um, building up, if they do master the target of up and I, depending on the professional, you know, Mm -hmm. I might say, okay, you know, we're going to just cue them visually, like open your mouth, close your lips, like, Mm -hmm. and just carry it over. But there's that fine line between frustrating the client all day. Yeah. We want to have that fine balance of Mm -hmm. not doing speech all day long. That's a good point because I saw something on a Facebook group (laughs) recently Mm -hmm. and it was somebody who was asking about how they choose uh, speech sounds to work on. And Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that this person was not a speech therapist. And I don't know if they were living, you know, sometimes when you're living abroad and not here in the United States, it is harder to find speech therapists that do specialize in helping autistic learners. So I'm not judging, but it always makes me a little nervous. Or if I get a random DM about, something like this, because I always want to ask that if it's an ABA provider, I always want to say, so you should talk to a speech therapist. And, you know, I hope that you have one on staff because if you're a good ABA clinic, you know, you do, because this is, I like how you said the speech therapist needs to ride the, or, you know, be the director. Yeah. Drive needs to drive, (laughs) needs to drive because this is, we have so much knowledge and we take so much coursework in this type of stuff. And when I was a speech therapist, you know, in a, in a very large ABA center, you know, I worked with a really great team and we did some of the things you're talking about as far as ways that the student could generalize something that had met criterion. And I knew that the student could say that word. And, and these weren't students with apraxia. These were students who were just a little bit limited verbally. And so they were really working on speech sounds and things like that. But I do think that that is really empowering for speech therapists to know that, you know, we do have such a great depth of knowledge in this area that we really do need to advocate for 
what we know and that mm-hmm. we want to make sure that we really have functional targets for our students. And just like you said, you know, for sometimes with students who are limited verbally, we talk about, yeah, we don't have to have, the kid doesn't have to say every puzzle piece that they want in the puzzle. Right. Like this could Balance. be a joint attention activity, right? Sometimes Balance. people that don't analyze things as holistically as I think that we both do, you can really start to sour the kid on wanting to practice these skills that are going to be so important to helping them become an independent communicator. So that's a great point. And speech is hard, right? Mm -hmm. They're coming to us for a reason, right? So if something is hard, it shouldn't be the focus of your entire day. (laughs) Yes. Right? So I'm a big advocate on balance, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, with coordinating with other professionals, it is super important because as a speech therapist, we have that child maybe two to three, maybe half hours a week or whatever Mm -hmm. the duration is, but the teacher spends a lot of time with them, the parents on the weekend. So you want to include these professionals and parents into the treatment plan, but it needs to be set where maybe there's a primary goal with the SLP and they're secondary and carrying over. But like, Mm -hmm. that's the discussion between, you know, the SLP and the treatment team and and divvying things up. Yeah, that's that's great. What we do here, which is really effective, where you know we have the OTs, we kind of do rounds, and we kind of see, well, what do we need? Who's targeting this? Who's supporting this? And kind of looking at, I keep saying it, but looking at the child as a whole and what their Mm -hmm. needs are in different areas, all those areas. That's really nice, though, because not every place does that. That's really the gold standard for treatment. So I always tell people, you know, where are you in your journey on collaboration? But the practice that you have is very collaborative, and that's really what's going to help the child best. So such great information. Thanks for sharing with us. So where can people find out more about you and your work and all that great stuff? Yeah. So I have a couple, I have an Instagram account, DR more speech, just all one word, DR more, two O's speech, two E's. I'm on Instagram and I'll post, I post videos, I post tips. I also have a I'm going to pull up the exact name on Facebook, Dr. Namasavayam, who's a researcher out of University of Toronto. He and I have a page called Motor Speech SLPs and Researchers, Motor Speech slash Apraxia SLPs and Researchers. Mm-hmm. And so we'll, we will post um, research studies and updates on there. So if you are an SLP looking to gain more knowledge in the area of apraxia or autism and apraxia, you can totally join that group because we do posts. Mm-hmm. We did a workshop together where we dived, we kind of dove into looking at motor speech assessment and treatment and what like the research is finding are those core elements. So Ooh. we'll post like different things like that too. So wonderful. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming oh, on. It was so great connecting with you. Thank you so much for having me and thanks for uh, tuning in. Thanks. Wow, that was a great episode with Dr. Moore. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope that that information will help guide you in your assessment and when picking intervention targets for your autistic learners who have apraxia. I wanted to tell you, I hope that you subscribe to the podcast and think about leaving a review. I love hearing from you. It means so much to me when you do that. I wanted to share a review with you today. It is from Speech Dude. It says, consistently awesome. I absolutely love this podcast. 
The conversations and ideas are very well thought out, and Rose does such a great job of asking intriguing questions to her guests to keep the audience engaged. I also like to visit abaspeech.org and check out the archived episodes and read what's been featured on the episode. Highly recommend! Exclamation point. Thanks so much, Chris, for that review. It means so much to me. Make sure that you subscribe and write a review. I could read your review on the next episode. We have some great shows coming up, and I don't want you to miss any of those. Remember to always keep things fun and functional, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.